It is the mid-1960s, and DC Comics is in trouble. The powerful publisher of superhero comics has recently been bloodied by an unlikely challenger. It's been a few years since the once moribund Marvel Comics launched several new superhero titles. Its sales are exploding. DC's are slowing, despite having some of the most well-known fictional characters on the planet, including Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. In the DC universe, something is very wrong, and they are desperate to stop the hemorrhaging sales and stave off potential ruin. So DC does what any large bureaucratic organization would do. It calls a meeting. Its executives, editors, and others gather in a spare conference room on the 10th floor of its corporate Manhattan headquarters to try and figure out what Marvel's doing that DC isn't. Someone tacks a few of Marvel's covers to the walls. Another spreads some Marvel comics across the table. The head of DC, Erwin Donenfeld, calls the meeting to order. Okay, okay, everyone, let's get to work. The kids are really taken with these new Marvel comics. Now, everyone knows our comic books are better. So the question before us is, why are readers suddenly buying these? Any guesses? Come on, anyone. Yeah, yeah, you in the back. Um, I noticed Marvel uh, uses a lot of red on its covers. Maybe the kids like red. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, anyone else? Hey, look at this Marvel art. It's it, it's crude, it's blocky, it's not clean like ours. Maybe kids are into this because it looks like something they do themselves, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, it's possible. Let's think about asking some of our artists to uh, draw worse, shall we? Hey, boss, look at this issue of Spider-Man. Look at this. Thing. There are three pages here, just Peter Parker talking to his aunt. Readers have got to be bored to tears with this stuff. Well, readers, of course, weren't bored, and DC was completely missing the point. This could have been a moment of self-reckoning. An honest assessment of where DC was coming up short could have allowed the company to chart a new course. Instead, DC's obliviousness would give Marvel a huge opportunity. An opportunity to gain even more ground on its rival. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. In our last episode, Marvel exploded on the scene in the early 1960s with an innovative line of new superhero titles. This is Episode 3, Copycat. Writer and editor Stan Lee, artist Jack Kirby, and others created a new collection of characters beginning with the Fantastic Four, followed by the Hulk, Spider-Man, the X-Men, and many others. Marvel came out edgy and sophisticated. DC, the industry's biggest player, well, they came off as juvenile and stale. And as we just heard from those head-scratching meetings in the mid-1960s, DC didn't exactly have the leadership to meet Marvel's challenge. The clueless executives do make a few superficial changes to compete with Marvel, but they fundamentally don't understand what makes Marvel Comics so popular. 
Meanwhile, a few blocks away in midtown Manhattan, Stan Lee gets wind of DC's misguided meetings and takes sadistic glee in trolling his competition. Whatever change DC makes to be more like Marvel, Marvel stops doing it. DC becomes like a cat chasing a laser pointer. When DC loads up its covers with word balloons to mimic Marvel's covers, well, Marvel suddenly produces cleaner, more poster-like covers. When DC tries to use more red, Marvel uses less. And Stan Lee, he absolutely loves this back and forth. It must have driven them crazy. We played this little game for months. They never caught on, he'd later say. No, they didn't. Publicly, DC didn't think much of Marvel at all. Take a listen to one of DC's top dogs, the editor of Superman, speaking about Marvel in a 1965 comic book convention. For the record, we are selling 7 million copies of all the DC magazines, and they are selling a million. I do think competition is healthy, and I think they did shake up the industry a bit, and I think we helped shake them up, too. The fact is that we don't know who's copying from who. DC's head, Erwin Donenfeld, soon develops another theory for why Marvel is so quickly gaining ground. And it's a doozy. He theorizes that readers are buying Marvel by mistake. That they mean to buy DC comics, but they get confused and accidentally pick up Marvel's. Yes, that's really his theory. Clearly, he doesn't put much stock in the intelligence of his customers. But he's got a solution for this supposed problem. To help DC Comics stand out better on the newsstands, he orders all the company's comics to be adorned with a black-and-white checkerboard pattern across the top. DC calls them go-go checks. Very mod 60s, right? The new design debuts in late 1965. Before you buy, check and double-check, one ad reads. <laughs> Readers double-check, all right. And guess what they pick up? Marvel Comics. The promotion has exactly the opposite effect. The checkerboard banner across the top makes it easier for readers to <laughs> skip the company's line altogether, and DC's sales further slump. It was the stupidest idea we ever heard, one DC artist would later say. The next year, 1966, DC will get a break, but it won't come from better art or design change. It will come courtesy of a new show debuting on ABC. Yeah, the series is corny, but that's part of its charm. The new Batman TV show sends comic book sales skyrocketing. That's simply a band-aid on a bullet wound, to be honest. By 1966, Marvel's lovesick teenager Spider-Man and Nordic Avenger Thor or outselling classic DC names Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Someone has to sound the alarm. Again. Remember Arnold Drake and Bob Haney, those two veteran DC writers who stumbled across early Marvel comics back in 1962 and tried to warn management that a tidal wave was coming? Well, in 1966, Arnold Drake tries again. He is so unnerved by DC's dismissive attitude that he types a memo to management that he hopes will serve as a wake-up call. Marvel succeeded for two reasons primarily. First, 
they were more with what was happening in the country than we were. And perhaps more important, they aimed their stuff at an age level that had never read comics before in any impressive number. We're talking about the college level. Drake urgently brings the memo to his boss, Erwin Donenfeld, the same man that had dismissed his concerns a few years earlier. Did you have a chance to read my memo yet? I did, and you know what? You are as full of it as a Christmas turkey. We outsell Marvel three to one. What are you thinking about? Get out of here. Even if the boss had ordered changes, DC would have had a difficult time producing fresher, innovative stories, to be honest. Much of its stuff is aging fast and out of touch with the younger audience. The man editing Superman, for example, he's north of 50 and as conservative as they come. Bob Kane, the man who co-created Batman back in 1939, and a man of limited artistic talents, is still in charge of the character in the mid-1960s. Change has to come to DC, or it will be in danger of being permanently left behind. Finally, in 1967, something happens. DC is sold to a conglomerate known as Kenny National Services. It has interests in a laundry list of businesses, including parking lots, funeral homes, and rental cars. The company will later buy Warner Brothers, and DC will become a division of that movie giant. But for now, the new owners force DC's boss out and thin the musty editorial ranks. Editors are fired. New blood is acquired. For the first time in decades, fresh writers and artists are invited to work at DC. To head up editorial, the new owners choose a man named Carmine Infantino. It's a left-field choice because Infantino is not a writer or editor. He's an artist. Infantino is a Brooklyn guy. He grew up poor during the Great Depression, and as a teenager, he landed a job helping a comic book artist. He later broke in at D.C. and was tapped to draw the 1956 Flash relaunch that led to the superhero resurgence of the late 50s. Infantino brings a street fighter's mentality to D.C. He fancies himself a tough guy, and he can be foul-mouthed and cruel, too. He often adds a Y to the end of names, making them diminutive. Joe becomes Joey. Tom becomes Tommy, like that. Years later, Infantino describes taking over D.C. Marvel was kicking the hell out of D.C., and D.C. was stuck in a time warp, very comfortable with what it was doing until Marvel came along with very clean, new, sharp material. They just chopped up D.C. D.C. needed a kick in the rump, and they brought me on board to do it. With some new talent in place, D.C. shakes up its titles and introduces new ones. It's a desperate but misguided attempt to emulate what made Marvel successful, or at least what they think has made Marvel successful. Turns out, capturing Marvel's cool is not so easy. Many of DC's late 1960s efforts to revamp are just plain embarrassing. One cringeworthy title is called Brother Power the Geek. The title is a blatant attempt to cash in on the hippie movement. The story is about a department store dummy that magically comes to life and joins a group of burnouts in Haight-Ashbury. The company attempts to copy Stan Lee's snappy trademark banter. Clangy, slang-filled dialogue creeps into DC's pages. Let's rap, Superman says to readers in one squirm-inducing 1970 house ad. The company drags some of its characters into the modern world in the oddest ways. For instance, there's the sidekick to Green Arrow, an archer hero that's been around since 1941. That sidekick becomes a junkie, 
Wonder Woman is given a mod makeover. She shows up on the cover of an October 1968 issue wearing not her familiar red, white, and blue costume, but a happening purple and white A-line dress and leather pants. In one story, she loses her powers altogether and opens a hip clothing boutique in New York City. One of the most bizarre stories, however, centers on Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, who perpetually pursues her romantic obsession, the Man of Steel, remember? But in a bid for real-world relevance, 1970s issue number 106 contains a tale titled, I Am Curious Black. In it, Lane uses Superman's transformation machine to change herself into a black woman for a day so she can investigate a story in Metropolis's Little Africa neighborhood. (laughs) You can't make this up, right? Unfortunately, I guess you could. But none of these attempts actually work. Sales don't budge, and many of DC's new titles are quickly canceled. Brother Power the Geek, for example, only geeks its way for two issues before it's trashed. Superman and its family of spinoff titles still hold top spot in the sales charts, but Marvel's gaining. The Amazing Spider-Man breaks into the top ten for the first time in 1969. Fantastic Four is not far behind. So what can DC do, its employees wonder? They've tried superficially copying Marvel with no success. So as the saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. Or in this case, have them join you. In 1969, DC sets out to steal away the man at Marvel, who, after Stan Lee, is most responsible for the company's success, Jack Kirby. And word has it that Kirby just might be restless. They don't call Jack Kirby the king for nothing. The veteran artist had teamed up with Stan Lee beginning in 1961 to create so much of the Marvel Universe that we still enjoy to this very day. The Fantastic Four, The Incredible Hulk, Thor, The X-Men, Black Panther, The Inhumans, those all sprang in part from Jack Kirby's fertile mind. And he drew them with a style and flair that set Marvel apart from its competitors, including DC. Remember DC executives ridiculing Marvel's supposed bad art at those meetings? Well, the art they were probably talking about was Kirby's. And yeah, his stuff may look a little rough around the edges, a little blocky. But most readers found just one of his panels more exciting than ten in a typical DC comic. Jack Kirby was ingeniously pushing boundaries at Marvel and laying the foundation for modern superheroes. But by the late 1960s, Kirby's growing disgruntled with his employer, and his relationship with Stan Lee is fraying, too. Kirby feels underappreciated for all he's contributed. He's created dozens of characters, exciting plot lines, literally entire worlds. But the publicity-hungry Lee seems to hog all the credit for Marvel's success, and frankly, Kirby's fed up. Then... In 1966, the New York Herald Tribune publishes a high-profile article about the duo. The piece paints Lee as the handsome genius behind Marvel. The story mentions Kirby only in passing at the very end, and not in a particularly flattering way. In fact, the article describes Kirby like this. A middle-aged man with baggy eyes and a baggy suit. He is sucking a huge green cigar, and if you stood next to him on the subway, 
you would peg him for the assistant foreman in a girdle factory. Ouch, girdle foreman. The slight does not sit well with Kirby, especially considering he was once Lee's boss. Back in 1939, Lee had been hired as Kirby's assistant. Kirby's a few years older than Lee, and he recalls finding the then-young Stan Lee irritating. Lee was, in Kirby's words, a pest. Now, the dynamic has shifted. Lee is no longer a greenhorn assistant. He's in charge of the whole company, and now he's Kirby's boss. The shift never sat well with Kirby, and it's been eating away at him ever since, souring his relationship with Lee. In 1965, Lee and Kirby do a skit together on a record called The Voices of Marvel. Who made you a disc jockey, Lee? Well, Jolly Jack Kirby, say a few words to the fans. Okay, a few words. (laughs) Look, pal, I'll take care of the humor around here. You've been using the same gags over and over for years. Under the comedy, it hints at their true feelings for each other. The final straw comes in 1969. Marvel offers Kirby a new contract. And what's this? The terms are an insult. No raise, nothing that acknowledges his tremendous contributions to Marvel in recent years. And the fine print requires Kirby to waive his right to ever sue Marvel. Kirby's aware that some comic creators are suing their companies. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman, unsuccessfully sued DC a couple of times for rights to the character. And just a couple of years earlier, Kirby's former partner had sued Marvel, trying and failing to recover the rights to Captain America. In other words, DC and Marvel are well aware of the value of these characters, and they're beginning to take steps to make sure they keep ownership of them. That's when Kirby suddenly receives a message. He's living in Orange County, California, Irvine to be exact. It's a sunny town about 40 miles south of Los Angeles. Kirby and his family have relocated there for his daughter's health. The move also got him out of the dark Long Island basement he affectionately dubbed the Dungeon. So Kirby's in sunny California when he's contacted by Carmine Infantino. DC's editorial director is out in Hollywood working on a cartoon, and he'd like to get together with Kirby. Now, the comic industry is a small world, and the two artists have known each other for years, crossing paths many times. So they agree to get together. And over a meal, Kirby has a surprise for Infantino. He pulls out three mock covers he's drawn for a potential new series. Take a look at these, Carmine. It's something I've been working on for a while. Wow, these are sensational, Jack. When are you going to put them out? I don't want to do them at Marvel. So, would you make me an offer? Infantino doesn't have to be asked twice. The greatest artist in the business is asking to jump ship, and with him may come the secret to Marvel's success. So Infantino offers Kirby a deal right there on the spot. He says he'll pay him more than the approximately $35,000 a year he was pulling in at Marvel, and with that, the deal is done. The news breaks March 12, 1970. DC's brazen theft is a seismic development among the biggest in comic book history. It jolts fans and professionals, too. The idea of Marvel without Jack Kirby, (laughs) it's virtually inconceivable. Back at Marvel, the staff puts on a brave face. One mischievous employee tacks one of Kirby's old cigar butts to the wall with a note reading, I quit. Lee's September 1970 column downplays Kirby's unexpected resignation. 
That's where we're at, understaffed, undermanned, and underfed, but as bushy-tailed and as bewildered as ever. Secretly, however, Lee is hurt and left wondering why Kirby bolted. He would later offer a theory. When he went to D.C., he insisted that he be the writer and the editor and the artist. And I said to myself that he was just sick of the credits always saying, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, with me as the editor. I think he wanted to prove how good he was without me. But I have no way of knowing if that's right. Was it an accumulation of ego-bruising slights that made Kirby bolt Marvel for DC? More money? Probably both. But Kirby uses his move to DC to not only exert more control over his work, as Lee hypothesizes, but to also strike back at Marvel. And as a former employee, he knows exactly where the weak spots are. And he will use that knowledge as a weapon that will soon ratchet up the Marvel-DC battle to a new, nasty, more personal level. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, TuneIn, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. You'll find a link in the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. And we'd love to hear from you, too. We're mulling over upcoming episodes. Tell us which business war you'd like to hear at Wondery.com forward slash survey. That's Wondery.com slash survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Reed Tucker, the author of Slugfest, Inside the Epic 50-Year Battle Between Marvel and DC, wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, and the creator of this show is Hernan Lopez for Wondering.